0: me to um, 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read verses 13 to 22 of 1 Peter 3 just to give some context here. We're going to focus on verses 18 to 22. All right, and so what we've been doing the last We've just slowed down in chapter 3 because it's really good about how to live as pu- Jesus' public witnesses in the world uh, in a way that gets our neighbors to ask, uh, why do you have such hope? Why do you live the way you live? Um, you yeah, know, surprising people with, with the gospel. That's what we're called to do, and so today is giving us the reason to do that as we see Jesus. He's, this is the power to do it. It's the strength to do it. It's the reason to suffer for good. So let's, let's read this, and we'll pray together. This is God's word from Peter. It says, now who, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy. He's, he's be- spoken to us today in love. Let's pray. Jesus, our Father God, we thank you for sending Jesus, the righteous one, to, um, to move towards us when we were not well. Uh, to be willing to suffer in order for us in order to bring us into your presence. And to our surprise, declare us holy and blameless, because he paid the cost to make us so. And I I pray as we meditate on the suffering of Jesus for us, you would make us a people who are willing to suffer to love others, um, that we would be a people of peace in a world full of conflict. And for that to happen, we need more of your spirit to pour out your love into our hearts, to change us, to grip our hearts with your grace so that we might want to do this. So show us Jesus today, we pray in in his name. Amen. So a young Christian uh, just got a job, a new job as a mechanic, is a story I heard. He's very enthusiastic for Jesus, very enthusiastic for others to know the freedom that Jesus brings, the change of life that he causes and on his first day in the job, he walked into this shop, right? You can picture this. It's, it smells like grease. Um, and he looked around under the walls, and right away, he could tell he was surrounded by people not like him because there were just scantily clad pictures of women everywhere. I mean, what would you do, Christian, right, to stand up for the truth? Do you pull a Gideon and sneak in in the middle of the night and just tear them all down? <laughs> uh, just stay silent? speak up. Well, this particular young man, eager to be a witness for Jesus, proceeded to tell all of these men that he was about to work with um, about the good news of chastity, uh, pointing out their moral failures, pointing out it doesn't honor women, you're treating them as objects, you're not seeing them the way Jesus sees them, because as a Christian, I'm against such immorality, and Jesus is against that kind of behavior. I mean, I, I don't know if he did, but I like to imagine him quoting the seventh commandment and and the shorter catechism, right? That God's against all unchaste words, thoughts, and actions. So he's quite proud of himself as he gets trained. (laughs) Uh, The man went home, comes back the next day, ready to go to work, to to witness, to just be a Jesus follower in the world. Of course, the guys heard nothing that he said, decided to amp up the offense and put even more scandalous pictures on the wall and unwilling to bear such hostility, the young man quit for Jesus' sake, confident that he stood up for what was right. And that was the end of the story. <laughs> right, so it's, it's a common, common thread, right? You're, we're sent out into the world. We're surrounded by people who believe differently than us, uh, especially in Peter's sake, right? Christians are a minority, and so this was just would have been a common thing. And would you say that this young man, kind of embodied what Peter has been teaching. Uh, the humility, the, the willingness to suffer for good. Um, on today's terms, right? To to suffer the unri- to suffer to love the unrighteous. All right, we're gonna come back to the story at the end here, but part of what Peter is doing, and that's what this whole section and this whole letter is just training us to, to navigate thorny, difficult relationships out in the world, both with people not Christian like us who follow Jesus, and those who are in the church. I mean, he's aimed at Christians in the world, but this is gonna help us in any kind of conflict that that we get in, because if you think about this question, how do you respond when you are in conflict with people who see the world differently than you, right? I mean, that's pretty much everybody, not you. (laughs) That's why conflict happens. Right, and I know how I tend to respond, my default mode and everyone's default mode, right, is we don't get mad, we get even. Uh, we live by an eye for an eye. Insult for insult, or if you're on the internet, you fire back another more insulting meme. Right? Really good at showing others at how wrong they are or just peacing out when it gets hard. And so Peter's going to show us another way today, and uh, the reason to stay in the relationship, um, in order to witness Jesus to the world, and it's to suffer, as the righteous for the unrighteous, because that's what He's done for us. And so, there are really weird parts, as you just heard. Uh, There's some obscure things about Noah that were like, "What in the world? Why would you bring that in here?" But we'll we'll talk about that. But Peter's going to show us the power of Christ's suffering this morning. Uh, He's going to call us to remember our baptism. And then he's going to show us Christ's victory. And so all these are going to move us to be willing to suffer, to do good. And so if you look at verse 17, right, of chapter 3, Peter says, It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, and for doing evil. And then, then he uses that word for. Here's why. Because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. All right, so here's, here's the motivation to turn the other cheek, uh, to, keep, to keep doing good and to be willing to suffer for it. It's right there, Christ suffered for you. And even if you know, right, the, like Gandhi said, who loved Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that, if, that an eye for an eye will just leave the whole world blind, um, even if you know that, everybody, because we're human and sinners, right, we hate losing. I hate losing an argument. I want to win. Right? And so Peter is showing us the power and pattern for how to respond in conflict, to continue to do good, to continue to move towards those who are against you. It's Jesus' suffering for you. All right? And as we slowly plod through Peter, I'm hoping you can see the beauty of the pattern and just the way he communicates. I mean, he can hardly tell you something to do as a Christian without going back to tell you what, what Jesus has done for you. All right? You can tell Peter has been gripped by grace that Jesus would suffer for him as a moral failure. And so he, he, this is the way he's communicating. You notice, right, it's here's how you should live, here's what Jesus has done. Here's how you should live, here's what Jesus has done. He keeps doing that dance, and, and so that's, that's what we're taking part is in, is that Jesus suffered. And so if we're going to walk in his footsteps, we're, we're going to have to suffer like him. The pattern of our life it's going to be J-shaped the way Jesus is, right? He comes down into humility to suffer, and then Jesus, then they trust God to raise him up and honor him. And so, we've got to ask that question. All right, Peter, what did Jesus do for me? Well, and he says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, and this is going to make us practical theologians of the cross. Right? Verse 17. If you should suffer to do good. Peter's showing us that G- Jesus didn't get an if, if it be God's will. Right? I mean, just listen to Jesus. Jesus did not get the if, I'm going to suffer for the, the wicked. It's, I came to suffer. This is the gospel of Jesus. And, and all over the gospels, he says, I must suffer many things. Be rejected, be killed, rise again on the third day, and you can read in the Gospels how he purposely stopped what he was doing in the public and walked to Jerusalem to die. And the night before he was arrested in the garden, Father, if possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me, but I want your will to be done, not mine. Uh, Peter, in, in his first sermon would in Acts, right? he would, he would say it was, the Father's predetermined plan that Jesus would suffer at the hand of sinners. Says, you meant it for evil, right? You killed the author of life according to God's plan. Uh, you can go back even further. Isaiah, in describing the su- future suffering of the Messiah, what does he say about Jesus' suffering? It was his will to crush him, to put him to grief. That's Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 11. It was God's will that Jesus would suffer as the righteous one for us, the unrighteous. You go all the way back to Genesis. This was what the Messiah was promised to do. That the very first promise of a rescuer coming, right, the serpent will bruise his heel, even as this Messiah, the son of Eve, is going to crush evil's head, and a snake biting the heel of a human, right, you're going to suffer. A poisonous snake. Right there. Very beginning, the Messiah is going to suffer. See, it's impossible to read the whole Bible without seeing that God the Father planned, willed, desired, if you will, that, that Jesus Christ would suffer for us, for sinners, for the unrighteous, for people who are not well. Right? We sang it this morning. Come and welcome, sinner come. See Jesus on the cross where Jesus deigned, it's an old word, for willed, wanted to die. Right, in order to bring us to God. All right, it, Peter makes the point that it's once for all, it's a perfect death, it's a one and done event uh, that, that our unrighteousness has been bought and paid for, it's finished. All right, if you're here today wrestling with another week's baggage of not living up to God's call to be who we ought to be. Um, come and welcome, sinner come, because the work is done. Right. It's an unrepeatable event. It was paid in full. This is where you go if you don't believe you're forgiven. You look at the cross. All right. So, what kind of people did Jesus move towards to suffer for? And here's where it gets specific. If you just keep asking questions and, and massaging the text, it's, it's full of good news, right? It's for people who have not lived well. <laughs> the moral failures, um, the people who live an eye for an eye, insult for insult, the self-righteous, everyone who's fallen short of any part of God's law to love God and love your neighbor. And so the picture you have is Jesus moving towards and working for people who are unwell. You put it this way, that Jesus suffered as the righteous one for the unrighteous in order to bring us as the unrighteous into the presence of a God who is righteous and holy. That's what he did. Now, why is Peter telling us this? I mean, I'm taking a short phrase and, and expanding on it, but why would he tell you what Jesus has done at this particular moment? It's because you won't survive conflict without this reality. You're either going to go, right, both swords out, running f- full speed ahead to, to slay those who've offended you, or just run away and hide and never deal with it because this is what's wrong with the world. (laughs) Unrighteousness is what's wrong with the world. Humans are going to human, and we have the propensity to blow it. And so the problem is for us, right, If we step out of the, the text and think about where we're at. In our modern culture, we have a really simple way of dealing with evil, don't we, of somebody who's against us. I mean, just look at social media. I mean or don't your probably your blood pressure will, will be, be in a better place. Right? We're really good at saying, yeah, those people stink. Those people are evil. And we just shame them into oblivion. Right? I mean, people may not even believe there's a universal right and wrong. They won't even say the Bible's true for all people in all times, but they're going to they're going to let people know when they're wrong and they're doing evil. Right? Because I know I am and and We're all experts at seeing what Jesus said, the specks in the eyes of others, and massively blind to the two-by-four hanging out of our our eyeballs. And so, (laughs) Peter is calling us to see our unrighteousness to equip us to love those who are unrighteous like us. Right? Look at how Jesus dealt with people like us. <laughs> right? If we have to remove the log in our eye before going into the tiny speck of sawdust in others, that changes the way you look at people. I have to look at me and Jesus before I ever look at them. And we're not good at that. <laughs> right? I'm not good at that. It's hard. Right? Because we're all, um, how do you put this? We're great lawyers at defending ourselves. Right? So I don't know if you've ever read the, the novel The Fall by Albert Camus. Um, the main character is a lawyer appropriately uh, because we are public expert public defenders and, and in this story he's, he's trying to show the problem of life without right and wrong. right? And so this lawyer, Cl- Cl- Clements, he's a good guy in public. He pleads noble causes. He's very self secure in his self-esteem. He doesn't take bribes. He doesn't do shady deals in the back. He doesn't brag about himself. He tries to be decent, as he says, and give everyone a fair shake, right? He's generally a good guy. In fact, he said, I'm so good, you could even say Justice is my girlfriend. We're dating. <laughs> but privately, in the background, he was unable to make any kind of romantic relationship last because he was continually unfaithful. But you know, boys will be boys. Well, in the story, he has a, a moment where he finally sees the log in his eye uh, as he's walk, on, going on a walk, and this young lady, distraught, runs into a river and just starts drowning. And he ignores her, he lets her die. And that's when it, he said, This became the bitter waters of my baptism. I started to see myself. His conscience came alive, and he actually started to look inward. He says, wow, I'm easily irritated. I am heartless and indifferent to the suffering of others. I look down and despise those who disagree with me. He started to see that his unfaithfulness was the common denominator for why his romantic relationships never worked out. Simply put, I mean, the whole story is saying, look at how much of an expert he was at seeing his goodness and how hard it was for him to see himself as he really is. Right. See, Be- Camus is helpful because what he does is um, he's showing us just our human propensity to avoid that title. I don't like being unrighteous. I much rather see myself as more righteous than the other person. But if we're all unrighteous, sinners by nature and choice, um, the most natural thing for everyone to do outside of Christ it's to say, I'm okay. Or, my story's complicated. <laughs> right? It's, it's not complicated when they offend me, but my story's complicated. Right? And so I'm slowing down, and I know this, this is painful and pointed, but if we're going to walk in Jesus' footsteps as the righteous suffering for the unrighteous, we have to see the painful specificity the specifics, ways we have been unrighteous. Confess the log in our eyes before we look at the specks of others. Because if Jesus, the only one who ever has the right to look down on those who broke his law, who offended him, who hurt him, who put him to death, um, moved towards the unrighteous to suffer for them, right, then we have to do the same. And that means we have to get over our self righteousness, our pride. Because the call is to suffer for good, to imitate Jesus as the righteous for the unrighteous. If you could put it this way Jesus was willing to lose on the cross in order to win us. How will that shape the way you continue to do good for those who treat you for evil? Right. And so Peter, being the practical theologian he is, when he says Jesus suffered, it is a good news salvation reality. He's, he's doing that, but he's using it in a particular way of saying, I want you to take the reality that Jesus suffered for you. He died. He was made alive in the Spirit. Pause on the Noah thing. Come around to the backside of this. Uh, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. And all evil is subjected to him. He will deal with it, but he's taken you there with him so that God is not mad at you. Take that reality of how Jesus treated you into every conflict when you go out into the world, when you go out into the workplace, when you're having family disagreements. Christ's suffering is both horizontal but it pushes us, or vertical, there we go. It pushes us to love one another in a horizontal realm. Right? So we could stop there, but we gotta answer these Noah questions because it is really weird, and I'm probably not gonna do it justice because theologians have been arguing over it for <laughs> 2,000 years. But, so there's really clear stuff here. But when you start talking about, part of what we're called to do is remember our baptism because right? that's what Noah is here for, because in verse 18, yeah, Christ suffered for us, that's clear. verse 22 is the ascension. Jesus ascended into heaven, verses 19 to 21, you're saying, "Why in the world would you choose to talk about Noah here? right I mean, Martin Luther had the same things. you know this passage is wonderful, and I'm not exactly sure what in the world Peter was talking about because <laughs> it's obscure. so it, I approach this with a lot of humility, of saying there's, there's a couple different options and there's some clear stuff. And I mean, if, at least in my Bible, um, a lot of them will have little footnotes on the different ways it could be translated. And there's like five of them in two sentences. Just telling you, this is k- tricky. So if you read it, it says, Jesus was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism now corresponds to this. Right? And cleared things up. <laughs> <laughs> so why talk about Noah at this point? And I think part of it is it's helpful to know that the Noah and the flood story I mean, I think even today that's one of the stories people outside of church still know about. But in, in Asia Minor, in the, the audience that Peter is writing to, uh, it was just part of their cultural imagination. They knew about the Noah and the flood story, right? So you can picture this, right? If, if your boss comes in and your coworker just starts saying, dun, 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 da dun, dun, da dun, 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 right, you know what he's saying, right? Here comes Darth Vader. <laughs> right in, in the cultural imagination, we get Star Wars references. Right? If you don't, ask your kids. Uh, they, they get it. Right? Just as Star Wars references can be thrown out and people understand what you're talking about because you have a shared cultural imagination, um, Noah and the Flood had that same impact on people in the church and outside of the church. It was a familiar Bible story, even if they didn't know all the specifics. And so Peter is using a story that he can show his readers the power of the gospel, what Jesus did for them. And so the complicated question is, (laughs) how do you connect Jesus and Noah? Or how is Peter connecting Jesus and Noah? I'm going to lay out a few options because there's no other way to do this. Sometimes it's just good to slow down and say, what in the world is the text saying? And some take this view that when Jesus went to preach to the spirits in heaven, it's saying that he descended into hell and preached the the gospel to the spirits in prison, people who did not believe in Noah's day. Right? That these people who died because of the flood, they drowned. They're trapped in prison, some kind of holding area, hell, uh, waiting for judgment day. Right? Right? And so Jesus rising up from the dead right in the spirit somehow goes to hell in between his death and resurrection to say evil is defeated, <coughs> I'm the king. I mean, I, I struggle with that personally. I mean, the main problem with that view is the text doesn't say Jesus went down into hell. Between death and resurrection, it says this thing happened after he's made alive, right, if you're reading the text. All right? so... All this stuff. If you have questions, feel free to, to come talk to me. But this doesn't seem to be a good place to argue that Jesus descended into literal hell. Because it's not anywhere else in the Bible. Right? Because it says he was made alive in the spirit, so he's alive. And then he proclaims victory to these spirits in prison. And when did he proclaim victory? When the angels were subjected to him. It's when he's in heaven. So it seems to be the opposite to me. Uh, feel free to ask questions. Another view is that Jesus was the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of the Messiah was at work in Noah's day, talking through Noah. Right? So that Noah, when he was saying judgment is coming, you can be saved if you come on the ark, God will protect you. Right? That was Jesus preaching good news to a disobedient people. And now they're dead and they're in prison but that, that Noah was filled with the spirit of the Messiah. I think that's a good option, a fair option. It's, it's, it's another picture of Jesus moving towards the disobedient, which fits the context, patiently calling sinners to repentance. Um, it's just saying that Jesus was at work in Noah's day. Um, others take a view that Jesus, after his resurrection, wasn't talking to people, but talking to angels, spiritual beings, because the only time in the New Testament spirits and prison are connected, the only things that are ever put in prison in the New Testament are angels. And there's a way to read the Noah and the flood story as being about angels having kids with humans and causing all kinds of violence and That's a really long rabbit trail that I'm not going to go down. (laughs) And I'm seeing people going, what in the world is he talking about? Exactly. Um, But the whole point is that Jesus suffered and he's proclaiming victory over evil. Whichever whichever way you take, the whole point is that God uh, was at work through the Noah story. And uh, I think the best options are probably if you take that the the sons of God in Genesis 6 were angels and not humans. That's going to fit here. If you take that the sons of God were Christians, God followers, disobeying God's command to marry only in the family, uh, other Christians in, in the flood story, then option two fits that Jesus was preaching to the disobedient through Noah. Like I said, there's, this is welcome to the world of Bible nerds and what I was suffering with this week. So you get to suffer as I've suffered. Because it probably hasn't cleared anything up. So, zero in on what's clear. What does Peter focus on after all that? He says, remember your baptism. Remember what your baptism corresponds to. And so the Noah story of Noah and his family, the few being saved from the waters of judgment by water through the ark, corresponds to Christians being saved by God from God's judgment, (laughs) by God's judgment on the cross. Baptism corresponds to the portrait of salvation with Noah and the flood. And so if you're wrestling with this whole idea, right, Noah and the flood story is a baptism event. It's God baptized the world, and all those who were in the ark were saved from the water by the water. In the same way that if you are in Christ, right, you've got to run towards God's judgment, and the only way to be saved from God's judgment is to run towards it as it fell on Jesus for you. All right. And this turns out to be really practical. Part of the reason I use Psalm 69 this morning as a call to worship is because David, in the midst of conflict, is saying, I feel like I'm in the flood. I'm drowning. And you, as you read the Psalm, you start to realize that David is describing the, the hatred or the hostility, the people against him, like being in the flood. And so here's the reality floodwaters are going to come for you both God's judgment being real that's part of what Peter's going after but also just conflict in general right conflict for God's sake will come to you if you're a Christian and so the question is will you remember your baptism what Jesus has done for you in the midst of it will you forgive will you continue to suffer to do good Or will you hold on to bitterness and let the water sink you? Because one of the things you find when you're in conflict, you can't learn the freedom forgiveness gives until you go through it. I know I ought to forgive. We pray that in the Lord's Prayer. But until you're in it, you don't know how you're going to respond. And so the same flood that can lead you to run to Jesus for help, for refuge, to say, God, help me do what is right because this hurts, um, It's the same flood that can also push you to run away from him (laughs) and say, I am really mad and I just want revenge. And so Peter is pushing us to remember your baptism. Baptism corresponds to being rescued, redeemed, protected from God's judgment. Remember what Jesus did for you. Because that's what baptism is. I mean, you've got to ask that question. What does Peter mean by baptism saving you? I mean, we're Protestants. So that's another thorny issue. Right? Every Christian's called to be baptized. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to be baptized. Um, it's a significant part of obeying Jesus' commands. And if you're baptized, you're, ba- you're marked by water in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. Right? But what is it? communicating? What is it showing? What is it corresponding to? The Roman Roman Catholic Church argues that if you don't have water marking you, you're not saved, that you need baptism to be saved because of this passage. I would argue that ignores the rest of the Bible (laughs) and what Peter says. The rest of the Bible says you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, not by anything we do. Even Peter says, Baptism now saves you, but not because it removes filth from your actual body. Right? It doesn't actually physically do anything for you that way. It doesn't cleanse you that way. It does save. The water isn't magical, right, when you get baptized. <coughs> Baptism doesn't automatically make you a better person. So you've got to ask Peter, what do you mean? What saves us? Well, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's the second part of that sentence. Jesus saves me. So you're thinking about baptism. What does baptism correspond to? It corresponds to what Jesus has done for me. His baptism. He went through the waters of judgment. In my place, he suffered as the righteous for the unrighteous. So I can be forgiven. How? Well, the, the paid in full stamp comes when Jesus rose from the dead. That's what we're, we're picturing here. Baptism saves me because I'm trusting in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Right, there's an objective reality that my faith connects me to. There is something we're a part of, and that's what Peter keeps going here. All right, baptism, which corresponds to this judgment event, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus, um, right? As we remember our baptism, there's, there's a part of your baptism, right? That the resurrection is, is appealing to God for you. That, that's what I found helpful with this text. We wanna, make how, we wanna make our baptism about us and our faith, and Peter's saying baptism is appealing to God through Jesus' resurrection, for you, and if you start to think about that, what did the gospel do? It brought you all the way from being unrighteous to being in Christ. You died with Christ. You rose again in Him, and now you're seated with Him in the heavenly places. Jesus's resurrection appeals to God for you. He's alive. This is, this is a a non familiar. <laughs> non-Western way of saying Jesus is interceding for you through his resurrection. Remember your baptism. We do respond to his grace, right? We, we make pledges. We want to have a good conscience. Um, I think Peter is thinking about the commitment you make when you get baptized and you become a Christian. You say, I'm going to, to the best of my ability with the Spirit's help, seek to follow Jesus and keep his commandments. Right, You want to have a good conscience in conflict. That's that's the whole point of this. So if you're remembering your baptism, you're remembering what Jesus has done for you, and you're remembering your original commitment <laughs> to follow him, to honor him with your life. And uh, to do so with a good conscience, because it does not feel good to say, I am called to honor Jesus. And I'm getting out the flamethrower and mowing everyone down that disagrees with me. Right, and So Peter is saying, remember your baptism because it's connecting you to Jesus. He is, he is for you. So conclusion here. That was a lot. And I feel like I could probably talk about that for a lot longer and still be, still be challenging. But here's why Peter is doing this. Jesus' suffering is not the end of the story, just as our suffering to love others will not be the end of the story. Right? It's the path to being honored and accepted by God. Right? It's through the resurrection we we we're raised up, we're justified, we're accepted. And so if we're in conflict and people are against us, how are you going to respond? Well, I'm going to choose to suffer and trusting that God will defend me. I've got, got to let God's acceptance of me be enough. And let, let that sustain me so when someone's mad at me, I can still move towards them. S- still move towards them. And so the question we've been asking over and over again, why would you ever choose to love someone else when it hurts? Why would you stay? Why would you persevere? Why would you endure? When they, especially when they're against you simply for being a Christian? Why would you keep working for the common good of someone who hates your faith or hates you? Right. Well, here's Peter's answer. Remember your baptism. Christ suffered for you, the righteous for the unrighteous. You remember our, our young friend that we started with, this young Christian guy? You know, if you were to apply everything we just said, to that kind of circumstance. You know, what do you think you should do? What would you counsel him to do? Right? See, if we're going to embody Christ in, in any kind of hostile work environment. You're signing up, as Jesus did, the righteous to love the unrighteous, to keep, keep doing good, even if they return evil to you, because that's what Christ did for you. I mean, only God knows what he should have done. Maybe he should have just brought coffee and donuts and tried to get to know them first. <laughs> it's always a good, good place to start. But Peter, Peter is setting the pattern. Because Jesus was victorious through his death and resurrection, and we are loved, that sets you free to lose, to suffer, in order to love other sinners. Go and learn what that means. Let's pray. Father, we talked a lot about Jesus and what he's done, and I pray that uh, even some of the intellectual things would would soften our hearts, uh, that we would see um, just the wonder of Jesus moving towards us in gentleness, with grace, with mercy, and then that would then, by your Spirit, move us to, to show that to others. We cannot do this on our own, so I pray you would... Um, just invade our hearts, you would um, work in us uh, the desire to do your good will, which is to continue, if it be your will, to suffer for doing good. So may your will be done in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.